0: Well, the vision that began in chapter 17 and continues on into chapter 19 ends with a vision of the glorious return of Jesus to this earth to put an end to any doubts that He alone is the King. Jesus returns to rescue His people and bring history to a close. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 reveals to us The one and only conqueror, Jesus, who will will strike down the terrible enemy of His people, the beast and the false prophet. We learned about the beast and the false prophet back in chapter 13. The beast, we said there, symbolizes a state or government persecution of the church. In chapter 13, the beast was, if you'll remember, back in chapter 13, this beast was portrayed as these four different beasts combined into one. And we went to the book of Daniel and understood that imagery better. We went back to the book of Daniel. And again, that description of that beast in those four different ways is symbolic. It's a figurative language that's being used there. It represents all the anti-God governments that afflict God's people throughout history. That's what the that is a picture of the false prophet, sometimes referred to as the second beast. We said he symbolizes false religion. This false religion often we see teams up with this anti God government. The false prophet, the the false religion's role is to deceive people, to give its worship to the first beast, which is Satan. And it persecutes those who refuse to do so. When we studied these two, here's what we said. We said the entire time between Christ's first coming and His second coming will be characterized by the evil partnership of persecution and deception during which the beast and the false prophet will be allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. That's what it said in chapter 13 verse 7. I genuinely believe uh, I put myself into this that the majority of us in the American church have no idea of the struggle that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face proclaiming the name of Christ we have no idea for them for them the return of Jesus will mean far more than I'm afraid it means to many of us here today. I think many of us here today claim the name of Christ. And if we're honest, I think some days we think, I hope He doesn't come today. Because i got things I want to do. i got things I want to accomplish. These people in these other parts of the world, India, 65 million Christians who are persecuted for their faith, they've lost. They wait for this day. They, they look with a great anticipation for the return of Christ because they know finally an end will come. Jesus will reign supreme. He'll defeat His enemies. He'll defeat the persecutors of the church. They look for that day. They long for that day. Revelation 19, through 21 describes the great and glorious day when all is made right. Christ will return as the conquering King and Judge and put an end to Satan's persecution of the church and his power to lead people away. And that leads us into our main idea. If you've got a handout, here's the main idea. Jesus will return as the conquering king and judge and put an end to Satan's persecution of the church and his power to deceive. The purposes of these verses in chapter 19, verses 11-21, through 21, is to emphasize the glory of the coming king. It's intended to give hope to suffering Christians by showing them that they have a king who is coming who will triumph over their enemies. Everything in this passage points to the glory of King Jesus. So if you will, look in your handout. We've outlined it this way, verses 11 through 16. The glory of the returning judge and king. John says there in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. John sees heaven open. This indicates that this is a revelation from God. We saw these words in chapter 4. So John is indicating us this is symbolic language here. He sees heaven open, and this indicates to us this is a revelation that's coming from God. John sees a, a white horse. We've saw that white horse before in chapter 6 verse 2 and he sees one sitting on the white horse. I'll just cut to the chase. The one on the horse is Jesus. I don't think there's any doubt. The white horse points to the the purity and the holiness of Jesus. It points to his rule and his majesty as the great warrior king he is fully capable of defeating fully capable of conquering this beast and this false prophet notice what it says about jesus this warrior messiah if you will he's faithful and true can we read those words and you know how i am about words they're just kind of words right But when I read words faithful and true and trustworthy and true and those words are in connection with the Lord Jesus, they take on a different meaning for me than they do when they're coupled with anybody else. Jesus is faithful and true. Finally, the ruler for whom we've all longed for, He's arrived. He's, He's here. Ever since Genesis chapter 3... Verse 15, God's people have been looking for the head crusher. You remember uh, I told you in Genesis chapter 3, 15 is the first mention of the gospel. God promises Adam and Eve, they, they've they deceived, I mean, they've disobeyed, and, and the curse has come. But God says in chapter 3, verse 15, that there's one coming. Be looking for him. He's coming. There's a head crusher coming. And all throughout the Old Testament we see leaders. Raised up, right? And, and we wonder, is this the one? And all these leaders are what we call uh, shadows, topological shadows of that coming king. But all these leaders, what? They all have flaws. And they make it clear that they are not the faithful and true one. But John says he sees heaven open. And what does he see? I see him. I see that faithful and true one. I see him. Looking at verse 11. The words that come next explain uh, faithful and true. And in righteousness, no one will question His decisions. No one will doubt His justice or His cause. No one will be able to refute the complete clarity of the motives and purpose of Jesus. Because He judges how? In righteousness. They, they may rebel against Him, but there will be no unrighteousness in Jesus. He is faithful and true, and in righteousness, notice what it says, He judges and He makes war. Jesus has promised. He is faithful and He is true. He has promised to judge the wicked. And He will be faithful and true to fulfill that promise. That's wonderful news for His people, but listen, it's bad news for you sitting here today if you don't know Jesus. Listen, if you're lost, the last thing you want is for Jesus to come back. That's the last thing you want to happen. Those who know Him long and wait for that day, those who don't know Him, should have dread for that day coming. Jesus is going to come and he's going to be faithful and true and he's going to judge. He's going to make war on his enemies. He's going to defeat them once and for all. That's wonderful news for us as the church. Not because of people, the wicked are going to fall, but because finally, ultimately, our, our King has come and he's fulfilled all of his promises and he delivers us in our final salvation from all this broken world. Verse 12 continues to describe Jesus' appearance. His eyes are like a flaming fire. You just try to visualize that, right? You ever watch those Transformer movies? You know, those, those, whatever they are. Some of them can shoot fire from their eyes. You know, I kind of... Like. This is figurative language. Jesus is not going to be shooting... Lightning bolts or fire from His eyes. This is figurative. It's, it's a way of saying that He has a searching gaze that sees everything. And listen, it's not just on that day. It's right now. He sees us right here today. Can I tell you, there's days I want to crawl on the rock. But God's grace tells me that He'll forgive my sin and, and that sin's under the blood of Christ because I, I know Him and He will... Forgive that sin. His eyes are like a flame of fire. There are no areas of our life that Jesus does not see. There are no secret places in our heart that His flaming eyes do not search out. No one can hide from these eyes. He always knows the spiritual condition of His enemies and He uses His knowledge as the basis to punish them. See, there will be no doubt when Jesus comes back. He'll not go, Oh, I wonder... They were on the roll of the church. I wonder. No. Jesus knows. He will judge in righteousness. Notice what it says there. And on his heads are many diadems. He wears many diadems. Back in chapters 13 and 14, the great dragon. I know you're going to remember back, but it's been a while since we've been there and sometimes you're like, yeah, I think I remember back there. Back in chapter 13, excuse me, 12 and 13, we have the great dragon. That was a picture of Satan himself. And we have the beast and the, the antichrist powers of the world back there. And they wear what on their heads? They wear crowns. But they're phony crowns, and their kingdoms are set up in opposition and rebellion. John is saying Jesus is the true and only King of kings. And all the crowns. Of all the lands belong to Him as the rightful Lord. Who wears the many diadems? Jesus wears them. That's a picture of Jesus as the ruling, conquering King over all. And notice there He has a name written that no one knows Himself. Some people go, what do you think that name is? I don't even worry about it because nobody knows it but Him. One commentator says concerning this name no one knows. That Jesus has a secret name means that the human mind cannot grasp the depths of His being. There are aspects of Jesus that we will never know in this life. He is infinite, which means that we never can exhaust Jesus. Listen, in this life, but we'll never exhaust Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. There are attributes of Jesus that can't be known. There are aspects of which we have no access. If you and I could fully explain God, if you and I could fully explain Jesus, they would not be God. You and I like to be able to do that, right? We want to know it all. We want to know all the details. We want to be able to explain everything about God. And if we can't, then well... See, if you can explain God, He's not God. Jesus has a name written that no one knows but Himself. But in eternity, in eternity, listen, we will grow in our knowledge and in our wonder of Jesus. Every single day in eternity, we will learn more and more how glorious Jesus is. We will never exhaust Jesus. How long does eternity last, church? For eternity. Every day from now till no end of time. Can you imagine what it's going to be like every single day? We learn more about Jesus, how glorious He is. He has a name that no one knows. will not exhaust Jesus even in eternity. Verse 13, He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. For some of us, that kind of makes us squeam a little bit. The end of verse 15 also has a similar imagery. It says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And like we always have, or like we have done consistently in our study of Revelation, we go back to the Old Testament. Both of these, verse 13 and verse 15, come from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 and 4. Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 4. Listen as I read. Listen now, you'll hear some things. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my apparel. For the day of my vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Now we've talked about this before in what we like to say is biblical times. I kind of like to think that we're still in biblical times, but we use that terminology, right? We know what that means. In biblical times, a wine press consisted of these two vats, these two like containers, if you will. And they were fixed on different levels. And and the grapes, they would take them and they'd place them in the top one and people with feet would get in there and trample on those grapes. Some of you are going, I ain't drinking that. Right? Some of you are like, right. They'd trample on their feet and they would, you know, push the juice out of there, and they would run down into that lower vat. In that process, it was impossible to do this without getting juice on your what? Your clothing. Your robe. This gives a clear picture of the divine wrath of God. God is like the one (laughs) treading the winepress. God's enemies are like the grapes to be trampled underfoot. And their lifeblood is like... The wine that will flow out of it. And that's why the conquering Jesus' robe is wet with blood. Jesus is going to judge. He is going to pour out wrath on His enemies. Look again at verse 13. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. That's how John identifies Jesus in the very beginning of his gospel. Remember? John chapter 1, the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. That's who comes riding into the battlefield of human history. The One who reveals God, who is God, who made all things. He is here, and He's going to judge and make war. He's going to conquer. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. In verse 8, there's a reference to those who wear uh, fine linen, bright and pure. Verse 8 is a reference to the redeemed. So we use verse 8 to help us here. The armies in verse 14 refer to Christians who've been faithful until death represented figuratively there is wearing white clean linen figuratively for believers clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus now what do we mean by imputed righteousness of Jesus simply here's what it means you trust Jesus Jesus takes your sin and then he takes his righteousness and he imputes it he puts it to your account it's figured for believers clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And notice that just like their champion, just like their king, they also ride on white horses, signaling that they've been made to share in His victory and in His purity. That's what's going on there. You're going to share in that day the glory of the Lord Jesus. You'll be put on display as His glory, but you'll get to share in His glory that day verse 15 says from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty the sharp sword comes from jesus mouth again is figurative it betrays his power to speak decisive words of judgment to the rebellious nations it's not an actual sword that comes from jesus mouth it's Figurative, it's symbolic for the Word of God. These words are a verdict of judgment and death upon the nations. Jesus will strike down the wicked, the anti-God. He will rule them, it says here, with a rod of iron. Listen, church, Jesus will rule. It's going to happen. And here's what I would say to you and I as the church and as believers. Quiet your soul with these words. He will rule. This week I'd wake up in the morning Jesus is going to rule. Jesus will rule. Quiet your soul with that. He will rule. Notice there the treading of the wine press. Again, proclaims the fulfillment of what we read in Isaiah chapter 63. Jesus is the instrument of God's judgment. And through this judgment... He accomplishes the final deliverance of his people. Once and for all, our salvation is complete. We are delivered, and those anti God nations, the people of this world who refuse Jesus, are judged. In verse 16 the one who judges has a name inscribed on his robe and thighs the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Jesus is the one who can stand against even the mightiest human opponent and overcome him. Church and I say this to myself as well as to you, we have a powerful King. You have a fearsome Lord, and no one can overcome Him. No one. Don't don't overlook the saints here are a significant contrast with the unbelievers in verse 21 who serve the beast and, and the false prophet. The saints... Ride to eternal victory while Christ's enemies are killed with a sword and fed to the birds. And pay attention to how the future of each rests with the success or failure of its champion. And here's what I'd say to you today. You line up with the beast and the false prophet. In other words, if you're lost and not trusting in Christ, you'll be eternally hopeless and eternally punished you will be thrown into the lake of fire. But if Jesus is your King of kings and Lord of lords, you'll never be disappointed. And just in case you missed it, I may have said this already, you'll ride along with Him as He rides to victory. We will dwell with him one day in the new heavens and new earth where enemies are no more, and Jesus rules uncontested for all eternity. Now here's my question for you. Who is your champion today? In whom do your hopes lie? Where is your loyalty? Where is your allegiance? And here's what I'd say to you you better choose carefully because there's only one winner on that day. There's only one. And it's Jesus. We see it here in God's Word. My other question would be this. What does He see in you when He searches you with His eyes of fire? What does He see? Does He see you rebelling against Him? If that's the case, I call on you today to turn from your rebellion and to trust in Jesus. It's better to ride on a white horse than it is to get eaten by birds. Wouldn't you agree? Turn to Jesus. He'll show you mercy and forgiveness. Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 says, Do homage or honor to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Everything said in these verses here, 11 through 16, is about the glory of the rider on that white horse. Church, this is the one we worship. This is the one we worship. See all your hopes realized in Him. Plan your life around the future that He will bring. Build all your dreams to align with what He will do. Place all your expectations in this life. On him. He'll not let you down. How do we know that? Because he's what? Faithful and true. Now, having seen and described the rider on the white horse, John now sees in verses 17 through 21 the judgment and defeat of Jesus' enemies. Once again, the background of these verses is found. Does anybody want to guess where you go to find the background for these verses? Somebody said Isaiah. You're in the ballpark, Old Testament. Almost always, it can be three places Daniel, Ezekiel, or Isaiah. This time it's in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. In Ezekiel, you see the prophecy of God's judgment fulfilled against Gog and Magog. I don't have time to go into those strange names there, but you see the prophecy of. God's judgment fulfilled against Gog and Magog, who are oppressing the people of God. In Ezekiel, birds are invited to gather for a feast and eat the flesh and drink the blood of Israel's enemies because God is going to judge them. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, come. Gather for the great supper of God. What kind of voice is here? It's an angel standing in the sun. What kind of voice does he use? A loud one. In a loud voice, the angels cause the birds to gather for a great supper prepared for them, the birds, by God. Notice there it's called the great supper. It's because God, through Jesus, will consume. His enemies, once and for all. All who serve the beast, all who oppose God, will be consumed. Verse 18. Cause of a loud voice, the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The picture, it's a pretty gruesome picture, is it not? It's a way of describing the destruction of those who reject Jesus. In verse 19, we have the final attack upon uh, what we call those uh, anti-Christian governments. The beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war. They're gathered to make war upon Christ and His church. With their armies gathered to make war against Him who was sitting on the horse and against His army. We've already seen the description of this final battle in chapter 16. And we're going to see it one more time in chapter 20 is to remind us just in case that there might be uncertainty as to who's going to win. We're called sheep in the Bible for a reason, right? Why? We're dumb and we forget. And we're reminded three times in the Revelation, Jesus wins. The outcome is certain from the get-go. Notice, notice the angel. Don't miss this. The angel commands the birds to come and eat before the battle ever begins. You see that? The battle hadn't even started and God's saying, come on. You know what that tells me? It's for certain. It's for sure. Verse 20, And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet... Who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Listen, this is not going to be a three year war or a seven year war. This battle is swift. Jesus executes judgment so quickly, the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. There is, listen, there is no battle. Captured, condemned. That's all we see. There's no war but only a word. Words from the same mouth that looked at a fig tree and spoke a word and that fig tree, what? Withered. A word from a mouth that called a demon from a poor man's soul and cast it in the sea. Jesus speaks one word and the battle is over. Jesus' army, you and I, we just stand behind Him. We don't lift a hand. Jesus does it with one word. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, He speaks and it's all done. Listen, you and I have a front row seat to that. We'll get to sit and observe the glory of our King. Verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gap were excuse me, were gorged with their flesh. What we have here is a picture of the Gospel itself. On the cross, Jesus won the battle over sin that you and I could not lift a finger to fight against. You see that? This is a picture of the Gospel. We don't lift a finger because we can't do anything. Jesus is going to speak and it's done. It's a picture of the cross. You and I couldn't do a single thing to make our souls right with God. We couldn't lift a finger to fight against our great enemy sin. On the cross, Jesus won the battle. His victory becomes our victory. And here we see Jesus destroys sin and death that has plunged humanity in the world. It's plagued the world. Jesus is faithful and true to his word. You know, sometimes you're like me and the world we live in. If we're honest, some days it seems as if evil always wins. Does it not? That's alright, church. Acknowledge you think that. Yes. However, that is not the reality that the Bible reveals to us. Jesus is coming again. And those who oppose Him and reject Him will be destroyed. God has allowed evil to do its worst for a long time. But listen, the Bible says God's not going to tolerate it forever. When Jesus returns, we'll see the last battle. Once and for all, sin, Anti God, destroy. But the battle here is amazingly easy, because Jesus simply speaks a word, and his enemies are routed and thrown into the lake of fire. Let me tell you something. You want to be on the winning side today. If we belong to Jesus, we are assured of ultimate victory. Let's pray.